Uh, welcome to another episode of Living Lives with Khalid. Uh, today, my guest is a very dear friend of mine, Richard Pao. Uh, Richard is a man of many hats. He has been in the military and he has worked for uh, His Royal Highness the Prince Charles as master of, uh, of the household. And he's later moved on to become uh, part of Standard Chartered as vice chairman of their private bank. And later on, had was CEO of a construction company, I believe hospitals, I could be wrong, but we will discuss that in a second. And uh, now he has joined the True Beacon team, uh, which is a fund investing in India. And so, hey, Richard, how are you doing? It's good to see you, Colin. I'm sorry we're not in the same room. I'm sorry we're not in the same room and uh, conducting this in person. But uh, yeah, I'm speaking to you from South India, Bangalore, where I've been for the last four and a half months or so. So another week to go here and then finally back to family. Finally going to back home to London. You must be thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, I mean, it's, it's been, um, I, I, I can't complain. I've staying in an amazing hotel here. I've managed to do some work I've kept occupied and, um, and also, you know, I'm sure we'll touch on my love of India and, you know, later on, but, um, but it's, it's, it's tough not, you know, being there with the, with the family and so on who are all locked down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's been an incredible journey for you being in India as well, I'm sure. Uh, you guys have, because the, the market changed significantly because of Corona as, as the viewers and you, of course, know. And so it must have been an incredible experience to be a part uh, of the changes that have occurred and how to adapt and adjust to the market situation as well as the, the philanthropic uh, endeavors that you guys have taken as, as True Beacon. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that. How has that been for you? Yeah, it's been, I mean, actually, you're right. It's been fascinating to be here in India. It's been wherever you've been, uh, you know, locked down around the world. Obviously, you've, you, most of us are focused on that particular country. What I've seen in India was, um, you know, to, to begin with, India um, fared very well in, in, in this whole uh, episode. Um, there was a, a dramatic and, and quite a short notice lockdown. I think it was something like three and a half hours we all had, which is hence I, I you know, I'm staying in the country uh, back in March at the end of March, and that seemed to be um, very effective in terms of containing it. Um, sadly, at the time of recording, um, you know, it doesn't look quite like um, the, the case, and we have quite a few hotspots across India, not least this one where I'm sitting uh, in now Bangalore, but. Um, Obviously, a country like India is even more affected when you suddenly turn off the economy or, or sort of paralyze it or hibernate it at very short notice. Because a lot of people here rely on their daily wages, which are in cash. It might be, you know, five, ten dollars a day if they're lucky. Um, and suddenly their, their families are without. So, uh, yeah, it's been very interesting to be here to see what effect that's had on the economy, but also uh, to be part of a very small part of a uh, philanthropic effort here to help. Um, feed in particular families here in the city and across Connecticut, the state that I'm in as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. So we're gonna we're gonna circle back to to more on India, but I want to because you've done so much in your life. I want to take uh, the listeners through through the journey that you've done and and through your experiences. And I know philanthropy is is a key feature and a a, a huge role in your life. And so I want to also discuss that in more details. Um, but first of all, let's start with with young Richard uh, joining the military, and how has that been? Uh, how has that experience, and what have you gained from it, and and what is remains with you till today from that experience? Um, 
Well, to start off, you know, I, I grew up in the UK and I think uh, most of my peer group when I was a small boy uh, wanted to be pilots or train drivers or anything that was um, seemed to be out of the ordinary. I wanted to be a bank manager back then when I was a little <laughs> Uh, and so uh, I ended up actually joining the military totally and utterly by accident, like most of my chapters in my life. Uh, one of my best friends at school joined cadets. I ended up joining cadets as well. I <clears throat> uh, was very lucky and fortunate. I started to do lots of adventure training when I was a teenager. I got my gliding license at the age of 16. I got my flying license for fixed-wing aircraft at, uh, at 17. Wow. And, wow. Then, and then joined the Royal Air Force and, and spent 18 years or so. It was an incredible, incredible chapter for me. It was, uh, I feel very blessed that I was able to um, take all of those opportunities to learn a tiny bit from, uh, you know, everyone along the way. And um, and also to have experiences that most people um, don't have. And, and there's a real camaraderie, of course, in any military around the world, but particularly in a very uh, testing uh environments and that's typically you know combat zones and uh, war fighting operations and so on but also just um, the fact of day-to-day flying um, the dependency you have on each other as a crew um, and that I think um, holds you in good stead for the rest of your life because it really does illustrate teamwork not through theory but um, through practice and, and the consequences of a team not performing um, obviously in some cases can be life-threatening. Yeah, yeah, and it's definitely a present role that I've I've even witnessed in your life as just a friend. That that teamwork and and bringing people together is one of the main pillars of, of that make you you. And uh, it's not surprising that you gained that, or, or at least it started the foundation from this military uh, experience. Yeah, it's right. I mean, most military and officer training schools around the world have got a uh, a pretty um, sharp induction to the world of teams you go off typically for let's say a year or so um, through an officer training school and you know it's less about um, just getting physically fit although that is a part of it it's it's more about um, how you can assemble high performing teams uh, lead those teams effectively because I think a lot of people who haven't been in the military assume that it's all about um, how you order people to do things. And actually, you find out in the military very, very quickly that, uh, you know, you might have a different, you know, rank tab on your shoulder, but in effect, people will um, follow you in times of um, critical um, danger sometimes and so on because of you as an individual. And so um, that, I think, has been very valuable uh, to me um, throughout my subsequent careers as well. But uh, yeah, it was, um, you know, I think leadership and so on, maybe we'll come back to it. And I, I don't pretend to be an expert or anything. I, I um, have seen and worked with some fantastic leaders. But um, I think a lot of it is uh, how you uh, react in a certain situation and how you experiment with a leadership style and you tailor it. Um, and you also learn massively from times it doesn't work as well. Yeah. It also depends on the team that you're leading as well and the corporate culture, I'm sure, of the team as well and, and how to steer them differently. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think that's right. I think it's very much, you know, on individuals, there's no one right recipe for leadership full stop, but even more so when you consider that you might be leading people that um, who perhaps are very culturally 
like you, you might be leading uh, international, especially in the military, you might be leading international teams of many different nations, and you have to completely change your leadership style to do that as well. I was lucky during my time that I served both alongside and uh, and also led uh, elements of NATO forces, United Nations, and so on. And, uh, you know, all of that brings different um, joys, but also challenges as well. Of course, of course. Which brings me to the next concept of adaptability. I mean, you've, you've done so many different things in your career, and now we have to adapt as a leader throughout those careers. So I have two questions. How do you find joy in all these different industries? Because you went from military to a royal household to uh, banking and then to, to construction and now to uh, a fund. So how do you find joy in such different industries, even though there are some uh, connectivity between all of them? Uh, what, what joys do you find in all of these? And how do you find adaptability as, as a how do you adapt as an individual to these new roles and new challenges that you have to face? I think the first question is, how do you find joy? You know, if you don't find joy in something, I think stop doing it. I mean, you know, there will be challenges in everything that you do and it's, you know, not every single day is going to be fantastic. And, uh, but generally in all of my careers um, and little chapters in life, I've loved them and I've, I think if you can find joy in something, you enjoy it, you become good at it, and everything else follows. Uh, so I think that, you know, a lot of this is about your attitude to kind of reinventing yourself uh, and so on. And I've always been very open to reinventing myself, but also realizing, you know, as you get older, I'm now 51, you know, who you are and what you're good at. And more importantly, I think what you're terrible at. Uh, and, um, and sort of kind of investing in the, in the bits of you that you can really uh, make the most progress in and, and steering away from elements in life that are not going to ever satisfy and fulfill you. So I think, as you say, that's a good word. Joy is very important in anything that you do professionally, uh, just because I think it does sort of shine through. I, you know, whenever I've worked with people and for people and had people working for me, you know, you, it's very evident who has that joy, often described as passion for something. Um, and more often than not, even if people aren't technically brilliant at something, the, the joy, the passion will take them uh, almost all the way. You know, in terms of adaptability, I think that, um, uh, as I say, I've never planned my life. I've been, I feel incredibly blessed that I've had a, a, a whole range of what I consider to be very interesting roles that I could uh, do. And I think that, again, being adaptable or just working out how you can take some of your previous uh, experiences and then leverage them in your next role. Um, and also, to some degree, sort of carve out a little bit of a new role, um, recognizing who you are, um, is increasingly important. You know, I've got three teenage children. They are unlikely to have, you know, two or three careers. They will probably have, who knows, six, seven, eight careers in their lifetime. And I think as we all grow uh, and live uh, longer, that's an increasingly important uh, element uh, to do. And I, although in my life I've never really been um, a deep specialist, I've been very fortunate to become quite a generalist and being forced in different 
arenas, thinking back in the military, doing uh, working in the Ministry of Defence, for example, in a new area or I knew nothing about, um, but able to kind of assimilate as much as you can and then to learn. And then the military also teaches you that your life is really carved up into little segments and they're normally never longer than two years, um, probably never shorter than six months, but uh, you're thrown into the deep end uh, of a new subject area you might not know anything about. Did equipment, uh, procurement, everything from that through to the, you know, the press office working in the Ministry of Defence and the media and so on um, as a ground job in addition to my flying duties. Um, and I think it sort of prepares you for the future quite well. Yeah. yeah. And I think you also have the ability to bring people together. So even when you're faced with something new, you're in a new industry with new challenges. I think you're the type of person that also is open to learning from others, even, and you empower others. At least that's what I got. So what is the, the role of empowerment within a team that you've had where you guys uh, especially since you've been in so many industries, uh, how has empowerment benefited the projects that you worked on and uh, the level of productivity within the teams that you've worked with? Yeah, I mean, I think as a, as a leader, I think one of the greatest challenges that most leaders have, and, and I'm, I really suffer from this, is about effective delegation. Mm-hmm. And if you're a bit of a um, control freak or you really want to get into um, what happens on the ground, it is difficult to say to people, listen, you know, this is what ultimately the team needs to achieve. This is what you need to do as an individual. And then allow them the time and the space to hopefully succeed. But, you know, 5% of the times they may well fail. And I've learned, I think, during my time that that it is better to accept that 5% failure, that um, in 95% of cases, the overwhelming majority of people relish um, responsibility. They relish the chance to uh, really drive something themselves and contribute to the team, and they will deliver. But it is you know, not without its risk, and sometimes you have to be very careful about what risks are assigned to people who who take on that. So I think empowerment, empowering people on your team is a, a vital part of being a leader and management skills as well. But I think it also means setting boundaries in terms of what they can do, what they can't do, the autonomy that they have. But also coming back and having a, a good sort of feedback loop so that they can communicate any issues or problems and they can also get crucially either you to help or one of you know the rest of the team to help them as well but it's it's yeah it's very important and I'm I'm sure we've all worked for people who haven't been like that and um, it can be very stifling for people um, and doesn't bring out the best either yeah and how do you deal with this five percent of failures that happen and occur. Yeah. How, how do you, do you uh, motivate the individual that failed and how do you transform that failure and, uh, again, adapt to the situation where they failed mm-hmm. to accomplish a task that might have been crucial towards the, the entire goal of the team? How can you transform that failure and make it uh, a non-durable one? Yeah, I mean, I think failure, and, and you'll know this, Carla, because you've, you've spent... You know, being educated in the US, um, 
which has a very positive attitude towards failure, for example, as other countries do as well. But um, in some cultures, failure um, is an enormous weakness. I, I've always taken the view that to fail once is incredibly beneficial, as long as it's not kind of life-threatening to either the business that you're in or, or indeed um, the, the military operation that you're undertaking. But failure uh, for all of us is incredibly positive. Um, yeah. I've failed myself in life um, so many times and the ability to learn from it to dust yourself down to get going again I think can be um, very beneficial for your future careers I think you have to have the same attitude with those people who work for you and alongside you as well I think to fail once is is fine to fail twice at the same mission or task and so on, uh, obviously is a, is a very different type of failure. And that uh, means that either there's been not enough remedial action for the individual that's carrying out that, um, or the task has been too demanding for them, or probably most likely that that person is not going to be able to uh, develop the required skills to carry out that. And then obviously you have to change the team to take that into yeah. account. Yeah. And I think it goes back to what you said as well. Uh, it's all about passion in the end. If they're passionate about it as well, then they're going to be more likely to absorb from the failure the lessons that are learned. If they're not very passionate about it, then they're just going to brush off that lesson and, and just continue doing what they do because especially if there's no repercussions the first or second time as well. And and based on my experience, I think it was very important because I've definitely made some mistakes with some clients. As long as they're not, you know, uh, the lifeblood of, of the business, I think it's important for you to learn from these so that once you build up, you build up the lessons so that when you are faced with a very huge deal or with uh, an important, significant chapter in the business's history or the challenges or whatever it is that you're focusing on, that you're able to take all those lessons and transform them into something successful. Because maybe this, this, this was a failure at this point, but then I learned a lesson that will make me win the bigger fish, let's say, in the future. So I think it's very important to not, like you said, be down, but get up and, and dust yourself off and continue. Yeah, I think, you know, whether you're managing a team or whether, you know, are now a dad and you, you, want, you want your children naturally to be incredibly successful and you want them to have the best possible life and all of the opportunities that that will bring. But you also don't want them to find out what failure is until they're, you know, in their mid-twenties or something. It's a good thing to be exposed to failure relatively early on in life because it doesn't matter who you are, which family you come from, your, your background, your wealth, whatever it might be, all of us, all of us will end up failing at some stage and learning from it. And I think if you can have the, the type of attitude that, you know, failure is never nice. It's not a nice experience to go through. Yeah. But if you can be, um, if you can analyze it properly, if you can put it into context, and most importantly, if you can learn from it, I think, as I say, I think it's really positive. I, I agree. Um, so this makes me move to the next uh, next career that you had, which was the master of the household for uh, His Royal Highness Prince Charles. How was that experience, and uh, what were you uh, what were the biggest benefits from from that job in terms of lessons, life lessons, and uh, what was your role exactly in the household? How how did you come across that, and what was the 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 biggest lessons? As I said. 
Yeah, I, I probably won't talk about that chapter too much just because, of course, of course. Um, you know, it's a very private chapter to have. But I uh, was very privileged to work for um, the Prince of Wales and Duchess of Cornwall for two separate stints. First of all, as a query when I was on military um, secondment from the military and then um, latterly as um, master of the household. I think it was, again, an incredibly uh, broadening and inspirational um, time for me in particular. I loved every second of it. I learned hugely from um, from their Royal Highnesses and, and for those that I worked uh, with. Um, but I think, you know, jobs like that give you great breadth, again, um, because of the work of that particular institution and being so active um, across all areas of public life, um, whether it's philanthropy and business and so on, you get to learn uh, a little bit about so many different areas. So that was really uh, broadening for me. Um, and, uh, and after that, as you, as you know, I went off to join um, the private sector for the first time in my life. Yeah. And how was that transition? What did you, uh, how did you come about joining Standard Chartered? I know you said you wanted to be a banker from a very young age and you finally managed to steer your way into that industry. And uh, was that by chance? Did you, uh, how did you fall upon that job? And what made you, did you start in England and then come to Dubai? Because that's where we met. We met in Dubai when yeah. you were uh, yeah. based in, uh, yeah. in Standard Chartered in Dubai. So let me know about that experience. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, again, um, serendipity is, is fantastic uh, as, a, uh, as a thread that runs through my life. But I ended up meeting some of the, uh, the senior leadership in um, Standard Chartered, bank um, was leaving the royal household in any case uh, and uh, we just started to talk about where they were in terms of growing their private bank um, and uh, there was I think a, a good sort of um, meeting of minds around what they needed and, and some of the experiences that I'd had in my previous careers um, but for me actually I think that um, I also was very fortunate to to work for a, a um, for a woman who who was leading um, the private bank, and and ended up having a much broader and more senior role there as well. Um, and uh, she, uh, incredibly uh, impressive individual. And I think actually, you know, talking about leadership and teams and so on, I, I met her and I thought, listen, I'd love to be on her team. She obviously had great abilities in terms of putting together. Um, management and so on. So that was one of the key attractions. But, uh, but also Standard Chartered as a bank uh, is um, probably played to all of my strengths from before. It's a British bank, obviously. It's got a, a history um, throughout the Commonwealth. I had some exposure to the Commonwealth, that block of, um, of nations and so on. Uh, and uh, the role as well was not a traditional banking role in which I'd have to start from scratch and try and play catch up with guys and girls who are 20 years, um, you know, um, or to have 20 years more experience. But actually, I, I was lucky enough to have my own niche where I exclusively dealt with ultra-high net worth families, but also not in the pure traditional banking uh, silos, but more on um, putting these leading families together, generating the next generation, which is something you've been involved with, Khaled, and so on. Uh, the Commonwealth, Britain, um, and trying really to leverage uh, all of the client base for the benefit of the clients themselves um, so that they um, ultimately end up doing, um, having deeper relationships with Standard Charter. Yeah. 
And that's where you developed uh, Future Global Leaders Program, which uh, has been an incredible experience. And it's, it's, you, it's really you, your personality shined in that program because you have this ability to bring people together and to create an environment where people just feel not only comfortable with one another, but also like family. And I think it also builds on on your experiences that you've had in the past. So how were you able to achieve that level of, of uh, creating that, that those bonds that will most likely be lifelong bonds for all these different individuals? I mean, I can't. From different backgrounds as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can't, can't pretend that uh, I did anything other than look at how, um, in my case, the British military acts as this incredible way to gel people together in a very, very short space of time. And Future Global Leaders Programme started um, back in 2015, but it it was relatively a short period of time, seven or eight days. Um, But I learned in the military, if you could put people together in demanding, and not just physically, but mentally demanding um, environments and give them um, really memorable experiences and um, also uh, make them feel as though they weren't just uh, a member of a dreary course, but to be given, I always call it sort of front row seats on a course. You know, I always have this mantra, you probably saw it on the last Future Global Leaders Programme, none of our participants ever sit on a second row. They're always on the first row um, normally, you know, around a speaker, an inspirational person, a philanthropist, a diplomat, or a business person, learning from them, but engaging with them in a very senior peer-to-peer way. So um, I think it's really sort of officer training that gives you that um, window onto how teams can be put together very, very quickly. Um, and there are bigger challenges for doing it in eight days. Uh, but I think it's really good fun, um, particularly for the, for the cohort that went through uh, all of these. They're all facing uh, their own different issues, problems, and challenges, and they all come from wealthy families. But actually, sometimes, very often in life, that gives you an added sense of responsibility, an added burden um, that people on the street probably don't understand. But once you have a, a window into that um, community, you understand. And that's one of the leading problems for those families, not just as individuals, but also for multi-generational families. Because mm-hmm. yeah. you have the responsibility yeah. to better the world around yeah. you. Yeah, you do. I mean, you, you have so many different responsibilities. You know, number one, you've got a responsibility, uh, particularly once you get sort of third generation and beyond, you've got a, 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 a big responsibility about your family's legacy. If your grandmother has started a leading conglomerate in um, the Middle East, let's say, uh, and, you know, you're now, your time is there, you're, you're on. Um, you know, you will be judged about whether you have taken that business and made it even more successful or whether actually you've been at the helm when things go very spectacularly badly wrong. And those pressures are enormous. But there are also other elements, I think, in terms of the family. You have to keep on reinventing the family business. Uh, You have to build in technology. Uh, You have to be far more visible than the old days, perhaps, for promoter-owned, family-owned businesses. And so um, it's tough. I often say that the guys and girls who've been through the program, and you'll know this, Scarlett, you know, they've been to the best universities in the world. But even those universities in the world 
cannot um, prepare you for the pressure you will feel as being the daughter or the son of, in very many cases, a household name, someone who's known for their business, their acumen, the the, the corporate that they've uh, grown. And that, I think, is, is tough. And I think one of the great things about the program is that it allows individuals to talk to each other, their peer group, in a very safe space, uh, rather than um, talking to others like me, for example, who you know are never going to have that issue, that problem of being a billionaire or double-digit billionaire, whatever it might be. But to actually talk to your peer group from around the world to compare notes in total confidence about what uh, the pressures that you're facing are, are, I think, is you know valuable for them. That's the feedback we've got, anyway. Definitely. Like you said, there's a different, there's a huge gap between academics and then actually being on the ground. And then having access to all these uh, peers that have similar obstacles facing them, it's, it's, it's incredible to just exchange notes and inspire one another and also to, to bring the world together because they're all coming from different backgrounds as well, which moves me to the next topic of globalization. Although it's been present for the past thousands of years with technology and with, with airplanes and with uh, Zoom and everything now, it's, the world's been more connected and everything is much faster. And it accelerated this, this growth of the global economy. And uh, how important is globalization to you and how important is it in shaping the world in the future and the future generations, especially because now there's some resistance from a lot of different groups towards this globalization. But people like me and you have witnessed the reality and the benefits of, of coming together and bringing people together and how we have more similarities than differences. So what do we have to learn from globalization and what, why is it so crucial to world? towards the development of the human race as a whole. Yeah, well, you're right. You know, characters like you and me have been enormous beneficiaries of globalization. Um, But we are at a juncture, and we have been now for several years, where globalization tragically has left behind, um, you know, many billions of people on this planet. And um, when you try to explain the benefits of globalization, if you can't, for example, in a country that I'm sitting in now in India, if you can't say that, um, you know, people's lives in rural India uh, are dramatically increasing very, very quickly, then globalization probably hasn't had a very positive effect on them. Although in this country, people are thankfully being moved from poverty to uh, better, and to, to have a greater opportunities. But I think... But, you know, as, as we've seen in the US, in the UK, uh, in particular other Western, Western countries, um, also countries which perhaps have got a very uh, young demographic, globalization just, you know, hasn't reached all the parts that it was meant to. And if you are in, you know, the, the US in a traditional manufacturing area, for example, and globalization has not led to any benefits for you, but has actually destroyed jobs. Uh, you can understand why people are resentful about that and they see globalization as a very negative uh, piece. I think there are two elements to globalization, at least well, there are many, many other elements. But if you look at them, there's economic globalization and there's political globalization. And I think that uh, one of the key benefits, if you look through history at the most turbulent times of conflict, 
um, whether you call it globalization or you you also look at institutions that have made the world a safer place. It's all about increasing the amount of dialogue between nations on the planet. That's how we make a safer world. Hopefully, we make a more prosperous world through globalization in the business sense. But that, that I think, hasn't been so successful to date. I think that um, we've also seen politically that it is a pretty easy... Um, bandwagon to jump on if you're a political leader to rail about globalization, uh, to be more of a nationalist. And obviously that reinforces some of the characteristics that um, lead to globalization um, failing people. But um, I hope that perhaps we will, and particularly now, as we're all interacting differently and um, and we've gone into more of a virtual world. Uh, we'll see whether we rebound to life before COVID-19 as it was and so on. Uh, but um, I do hope that globalization in its new chapter will be far more effective for people. And I think that, you know, you talked about sustainability earlier on. What globalization should be doing is um, for the billions of people on the planet, it should be increasing their access to everything that the Sustainable Development Goals, which were launched back in 2015, there are 17 of them, and whether it's through equality for men and women, um, whether it's through just the very basics of having clean drinking water, whether it's through education, these are all um, elements that are crucial for uh, everyone on planet Earth, and we need to focus on them. And whether globalization per se is the route to get to that, I don't know. But I think they're even more important as a, as a roadmap, as a blueprint for our continued success, um, whilst bearing in mind you know, the sustainability challenges that we all face as well. So I have a couple of comments on that. Uh, one is, uh, you're right. So globalization has been a double-edged sword because a lot of people did not benefit from it, but at the same time they did but in things that don't resonate with them because they've been a given now. Uh, and, and what I mean by that, like, for example, Google or iPhone, they're all from immigrants and, and people use them daily. And I'm sure also healthcare improved significantly uh, because of globalization. You know, you have medicine coming from Germany, you have medicine from the East, you have medicine, you know, especially you can see this with the vaccine as well for the corona. People are racing from all over the globe to try bring out, bring about a solution. And uh, therefore, I think it did improve the lives in, 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 in general, in a general sense, not necessarily in a sense of monetary value towards people that are in manufacturing jobs, let's say. Uh, I think there's been one thing that you touched on, which was uh, education. I think there hasn't been a proper education, educational foundation to allow these people to, again, to the concept of adapting, to adapt to this globalization, because these manufacturers and farmers could have used globalization, but they were not taught how to properly use the tools. And I think that's where the gap personally exists. But I think also this moves me to the next uh, the next thing. I think that we have enough uh, resources in the world to abolish five main pillars, which, which are healthcare. I think everyone should have access to healthcare. Uh, everyone should have access to food and water, uh, a roof on your head where you have water, you know, and, and food and, and, and all of that. And then also uh, Wi-Fi in today's world. And finally, you need to have access to education. Uh, 
And I think what that will create, if we abolish these five things, you will get access to uh, all these individuals that are educated and have the foundation to actually create value. And then people that have already uh, a lot of success can invest in these new businesses that are upcoming and therefore own equity and therefore also create more value for themselves. And therefore you have a bigger economy, bigger GDP, but then you have the issue of overpopulation, which will eventually reach that stage. So I don't think there is, there is an easy solution to this. But uh, but those are my two cents. What are what are your thoughts on? Yeah, that? I mean, I think education. One one observation I make on education is that when you think about it, how we're all educated and when we're educated, typically now uh, in many countries around the world, at least half of the population will go to university, do an undergraduate degree, and then there'll be a significant and increasing proportion that go on and do a postgraduate degree, and so on. But if you also think about it, we're educated from you know let's say the age of four, um, certainly until 18, in many cases until 21, 22. And then there is little formal education that um, takes you through the rest of your life. And, you know, we're all living living longer. Um, we're going to have to be far more adaptable. There are new skills that are starting, you know, digitization and technology means that, you know, old dinosaurs like me, we genuinely can't keep up with what's going on. Um, we've never been immersed in it since, um, you know, childhood, unlike you, for example. Um, as a guy who's half my age, I think. Uh, but, um, you know, these are massive challenges. And I think that uh, the pursuit and the inflation of a, of a university degree uh, and above in itself doesn't help. I think that, you know, it's incredibly expensive now um, in, in many nations just to get an undergraduate degree, let alone a postgrad. Yeah. And if you're starting off your life in a, in a whole, you know, heap of debt, uh, I think mentally that's not good for an individual. So you have to look at how that investment is being spent, but also really critically when. And I think that we'll end up with an educational system that is perhaps shorter at that um, period of your life before you go into the world of work, but it's far more flexible for you to be able to pick it up. And I'm not talking about just merely a, you know, an individual doing online um, degrees or going back to do an MBA, whatever it might be. But I think that we may well, in some countries, go to a more formalized system where in different decades of your life, you undertake um, different educational experiences as a formed cohort. And I think that's really good. And I think it'll also allow people to reinvent themselves, to go into different industries, to learn about what's been happening in those, um, you know, in those 10, 15 years since they lasted any formal sense of, of education. But, you know, that is difficult. This is difficult to imagine right now, not least because there are so many um, millions of people um, around the world who don't have access to quality education right now. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that has to be the number one priority to get up to, everyone up to a common standard so that um, across different religions, obviously um, between male and female, uh, but cultural backgrounds, wealth and so on, at least people have a benchmark that will give them opportunities to do something extraordinary in life. Definitely, definitely. I think education has been one of the most important factors in my life. It, it really accelerated my growth and, and my understanding. And, but, I, but I definitely do think that there is a gap between uh, reality and being on the ground and being in a professional career versus what you learn in school. 
Uh, and I don't think that the current education system is as best as it can be. I mean, there are so many, well, first we can start with, like you said, the student debt. It doesn't even make sense to, for schools to be that expensive and, and what bank, if it wasn't to categorize as a student loan, would give an 18 year old who has never had proper job, maybe except a part-time job, 60, 70, $200,000, you know? That doesn't make sense. He doesn't have an income or she doesn't have an income. Why would you loan out that money? And then you have that burden for, for most of your life for a lot of people. And also the, the school system itself. I mean, I've learned a lot from, from my university and I'm forever grateful for it. But there were certain credits and criteria that I had to take that were not related to my major per se which felt like redundant. I mean, in some cases they were incredible. Like I took this class about uh, the history of Southeast Asia and, and uh, anthropology basically. And it discussed, you know, Indonesia, what happened in Indonesia, what happened in the Philippines and, and all these things. And I learned so much, but then I had to take classes like sex, gender, and society where I get, it might be, you know, someone's passion to, to learn that and to each their own. But I felt like it was an utter waste of my time to be in that class and, and some certain classes. So I think we are, we still have a long way to go um, towards perfecting this educational system. But I think we do need to have the conversation of how can we uh, figure out a way to mold the system to be more beneficial because there are a lot of things that you don't necessarily need. And in, in nowadays, especially with, like you said, technological advancements, I can just use a calculator to figure out so many different things or ask Google. So why am I being tested the old fashioned way? Uh, rather than it being solely critical thinking, rather than mathematical per se. I mean, math, of course, is something very, very important. I'm not saying we shouldn't learn math, but I'm saying it needs to be altered and adjusted towards the current state of reality, which is we do have access to these things. So how can we create an edge while using this technology to advance us rather than test us without this technology? Because the reality is we have it. So how can we use it to become even yeah. better? And I think yeah. that's, that's where we should be moving towards, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I, I, a couple of observations. I, I you know, spend quite a lot of time, as, as many people do in the corporate world, recruiting young men and women. And uh, now, you know, particularly amongst um, those who aspire to work for corporates or going to the financial services sector, let's say, for example, you know, they're all very highly educated. When you're selecting those individuals, even just to get through to an interview, it's incredibly difficult uh, to actually make any one of those CVs stand out, pop out. You know, once in a blue moon, stuff does pop out at you, and that person inevitably will get to the interview. So I think there's a lot of stuff during your initial education that you need to do that really is a differentiator for yourself and makes you stand out, makes you more compelling in the jobs market. And uh, whether it is something that you do uh, vocationally, whether it is a philanthropic effort that you've done, whether it might just be the fact that you've cared for your parents um, during illness and you've had to make very huge personal sacrifices to do that, that all really helps you. Just, I think, gliding through um, school and university without that, um, those days are over, those types of jobs, there's no entitlement to those types of people. So I think that's a big part of how education needs to equip people to get into the jobs market. But more importantly, probably, is I also think that education needs to equip young men and women to 
um, thrive in that new scenario. If you look at some of the leading corporates, they all have very different cultures, of course, um, but the, the soft skills about being part of a team, about knowing how far to push something, uh, knowing when to choose your battles in the corporate workspace, perhaps, sadly, um, if organizations have you know, politics uh, within them, as many big international firms do, how to navigate those, how to influence not just those people who work with you, but also influence your bosses, um, yeah. which is actually a key part of the corporate world. And I think, you know, with, with certain exceptions, there's probably not enough emphasis at the moment on, on that. As I think one of the benefits of, um, uh, of obviously all of us spending a lot more time um, learning during covid uh, crisis has been, I think a lot of people have been thinking, how can I develop my character, my personality, my skill set to allow me to be more effective in the workplace? So, you know, I think that that also will change in the future. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. And and also, I, I think this corporate politics and, and, and or the politics that is present in corporations should be taught because it's a valuable skill to have. I mean, thankfully, I've been blessed not being, you know, not having, because I work for a family company and I was also the first employee in Dubai, uh, I didn't really face that issue. I mean, as a leader, also, it is very difficult to motivate uh, a team. And I found that difficulties, especially being, you know, uh, having people that are older than me with more experience than me in the team. Um, so it's very difficult to navigate that. But but more so, I think I've heard so many of my friends uh discuss these office discuss the office politics that they have to go through whether it's with their boss whether it's with uh the different uh, colleagues and how there is a competition sense when they're all working for the same company so i think that the most crucial and important aspect of a company's success is to align everyone you're not necessarily in in a competitive environment rather than in a collaborative environment to create what's best for the company and therefore for you as well because you also have to be rewarded for for doing so i think so i think that's something and i think because of working from home now there might be a shift i don't think you can ever eliminate offices because there's a lot of benefit to being face-to-face interaction and you know i mean i'm talking to you over zoom right now it's incredible i I love talking to you as usual obviously yeah Yeah. but it's different if we were sitting in a room and we would have it's more interactive so i think this work from home environment some people saw productivity levels shoot up for some teams uh, I was discussing it with one of my friends. Uh, he was saying, uh, you know, the productivity of his engineers in the company went up and therefore now they're going to allow them to work more from home, but have the option of coming to the office. So, so there's going to be like a, a new development after Corona, which I'm very looking forward to see. And hopefully people will learn from this time rather than forget and, and continue as everything was. Um, this moves me I think, to... The- I, I do think, I do think, Carla, though, again, just looking at how what I've been doing here in India and perhaps we'll come back to it later, but you know, setting up and helping to set up a new team here. I think technology, Zoom calls the way, yeah, of course it's um there's been a big wake up call. Why on earth did I fly, you know, <clears throat> 16 hours for a four hour meeting when I could have done it on Zoom. But yes, you can up to a point. But I think that the uh we know each other incredibly well. We can explain things to I can see in your face in your body language and in your eyes, whether you understand something, whether you're in agreement with me, uh, all of those soft skills, it's relatively easy for us to do. If, on the other hand, you're forming a team from scratch virtually, yeah. Yeah. that is a very, very different proposition. And only time will tell when, obviously, we work through um, this 
teams around the world get the inevitable churn, people that may never met each other, but they've had to be part of a virtual team. We'll see how effective they are then. Uh, my own experience so far is that there's no substitute really for forming those um, professional, personal relationships um, as a team and then leveraging those in the virtual space. But it's been, you know, it, I don't think life will go back to how it was, for sure. Yeah. But yeah. neither do I think that we're all uh, going to work from home and um, stay in our pajamas all day. And um, uh, I, I do think there is definitely um, a space for all of us to be, you know, fit physically together in some sort of workspace, but probably not as um, rigid, for sure, as it was beforehand. Definitely. definitely. I, I 100% agree with you. I think it's, it's a very crucial, uh, as, as you touched on it, if you're building a team from scratch, for, for them to build it in the same area. Because you, you, know, you can also, you never know when you have someone's focus. If you're a new team, you know, I could be talking to you on Zoom and listening, especially if there's four, six, eight, ten people in the call. One or two people could be, you know doing stuff in the background or checking out other stuff on their laptop and wouldn't really know. So yeah. I'm sure the engagement is not also fully there. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'd like to move to the, the construction job that you had in India. Uh, could you walk us through that and, and how that experience was? Because you were back on the ground, you went from the banking environment and dealing with, with the high net worth families and, and, and I'm assuming great settings, whether they were restaurants, homes, businesses, offices, uh, to being on the ground. And how was that and managing that team and uh, in a new, also modern way of construction as well? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, again, um, not for the first time during our conversation, I used the word serendipity, but I, I met an amazing family, <clears throat> an Indian family, uh, during my time at Standard Chartered. I ended up being the CEO for that holding company based in Dubai, but um, the operating company is primarily in construction, but also in healthcare, uh, with other investments too, was all here in India. And India is one of uh, my sort of non-negotiable um, passion points in life. I've been coming, I came here for the first time 30 years ago. I, As, as you know, I think I, I did a, a year's exchange with the Indian Armed Forces while I was in the military. I used to come back here when I was in the Royal Household um, heavily when I was at Standard Chartered. This country is is literally my second home uh, and I adore it. And, uh, and to go and work for an Indian entrepreneur, um, someone who had an incredible track record but was very forward-thinking, uh, was very, very exciting. Um, and uh, it also gave me the opportunity to come down and not since my days working with the Indian Armed Forces, put myself into an Indian corporate um, sort of environment as well in terms of a, a business, one that we ended up merging in the end with an American company. But it was a really instructive, exciting, uh, you know, just over a year or so and that I spent doing that. And uh, again, you know, did I know anything whatsoever about construction before I started the job? Um, no. Did I know that much more when I finished the job? Probably not. Uh, but I, <laughs> I, I, knew, I knew some of the fundamentals and I, and I had an amazing boss as well who I learned from. Um, and, and I think a lot of life is about learning along the way. You learn from people you either work with or for in particular. Uh, I now learn a lot for people who work for me as well. It's a great new chapter that I'm in as a middle-aged guy. Um, but um, the, that, that has really stood me in good stead for what I'm doing in now in India um, and was, was great fun. And you, and you see in the construction world that actually 
Again, there are great parallels with the military. If you're putting together a big military operation, you might have thousands of people who are assembled um, at sea, in the air, on the ground to, for example, rescue one you know, individual um, in, a, in, a, in a hostile scenario and environment. Um, and those individuals all come together uh, in pursuit of that one mission. And, and construction, in a way, is all about that. It's all about the finished product which um, needs to be assembled, um, needs to be manufactured and assembled and, and, and effectively um, put together for the end consumer in a very methodical, logical, uh, efficient way. And I think that um, my exposure to that industry, to the family that I work for, um, was very beneficial in giving me a great, again, another great rounding in life and, and also um, in, in the end, as it transpired, it set me up for what I'm doing here in India now. Yeah, which is a great segue. So uh, now you're working with True Beacon and it is, you're investing in, uh, in India and there's a lot of potential in India. And so how has that role uh, been? Because it's, it's been, what, six to 10 months, I want to say, since you've yeah, uh, officially right. formed. And then, yeah. of course, as you were investing, Corona hit. And, and I know the, the stock market took a hit, uh, I believe, in February. Uh, how have you adjusted? And uh, what's your outlook on the future of the market? Uh, I mean, it's a very still promising market with, with uh, an increasing population and an increasing investments mm -hmm. and a lot of uh, returns that have not been yet capitalized on. And, and uh, how are you guys, what differentiates you? And uh, what have you guys been doing? Yeah, well, there's a lot in there. But there's a about 18 questions piled into one card. Yeah. <laughs> um, Trying to make your job super uh, easy here. This is a really exciting chapter. So again, um, forgive me for using the word serendipity, but again, you know, I met uh, the, the co-founders of um, a company here called Zeroda, uh, which is, um, you know, one of the unicorns based out of Bangalore, um, started by these two brothers um, back 12, 13 years ago, um, and uh, started from a little tiny platform that they built themselves to trade equities in India to try and solve some of the technology user experience and, more importantly, cost issues that Indian equity traders faced back then. And that has really transpired to be an enormous um, success story. And Zeroda today um, trades around 15% of the entire stock market here in India, making them the country's largest stockbroking platform. Um, the, the company is wholly owned by the two brothers. They've never had to uh, attract even one rupee of uh, external funding. Um, and uh, Nikhil Kamath, the younger brother as well, <coughs> has had this extraordinary track record as, a, as an investor, as a trader, um, scoring you know, great returns for himself and his brother up until today. What, you know, through Serendipity and, and meeting him was really um, trying to get involved in uh, the other end of the spectrum. You know, Zeroda is all about the retail market, two and a half million or so individuals who are on their platform now trading equities, but, you know, it is... Uh, across the entire country and, and widely accessible. To the other end of the, the spectrum, this is an end that I know about well from Standard Chartered, it's ultra-high net worth families and how they invest their money. 
So um, we've ended up forming a sister company, Tesorona, called True Beacon, as you mentioned. And it's really trying to solve three problems um, that that ultra-high net worth uh, investment space has in it. One is all around um, human capital, and in particular, fund managers. And fund managers globally, 85% of them, I think, don't actually keep up with the markets that they invest into. They, They score below where the market would have got to with an exchange uh, you know, tracker uh, product. Uh, and that is a pretty shocking indictment of, uh, of fund managers, number one. Number two is about product. And, you know, there's always some catch. You know, you have to tie up for a long time. The fees are outrageous. Um, there are sometimes fees on fees, sometimes even fees on fees on fees. Uh, and there's the end consumer, the client that really suffers from this. And whether that's whether the investments go up or, as you just mentioned, around the markets here, they go down. You're still paying the same fees. Um, so we wanted to change that. And then lastly, it's about how and why people invest. They invest for financial return, but they also, I think, want to be part of a community of leading business people, philanthropists, entrepreneurs who can also generate business opportunities. Because one thing I've learned in life is if you put a couple of entrepreneurs in a in a room together for more than about five minutes, they'll come up with some something that they can do together. Uh, or even if they don't, they'll learn from each other and they'll use it. That's that's like our dinner with uh, Kareem and Alexis. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. It always helps if uh, if you can put together like-minded people and and they're, and they're fun as well. But uh, so so we're trying to solve those those. And so we, you know, Trudikin is exactly that. We've got a great. We've got a 33 year old fund manager um, who's this ultra high net worth himself, the founder of Zeroda, Nick Hill, um, who's you know, really performed well. We, we launched in September with the aim of outpacing the, the Nifty 50. Those are the 50 largest stocks in, in India, um, very liquid stocks. We wanted to outpace them by about 6 or 8%. We're very fortunate that Nichols managed to outpace them um, as of today by about 26%. Uh, we've still got a couple of months to run. So I think we've, you know, we've really solved that issue through this platform. Secondly, we've got a product that has no standing fees to it. So people won't pay us one rupee unless we make them money. Uh, and we've got co-invested um, capital in that fund. And it's completely liquid as well, which is also, um, you know, pretty revolutionary for the industry. And then lastly is just, you know, creating, um, as I say, this community of people who want, not only want to invest, but they also want their families, their individuals, the next generation, all to be on a platform where they can interact with each other um, globally, learn from each other, um, you know, co-investment deals can be thrown up, m uh, opportunities, whatever it might be. And, and we don't charge for that. We just believe that actually if you've got um, a leading family uh, on the Tribune platform, it's what you should be doing for them. But also that business will also be very beneficial because there'll be new products and services that we'll eventually go into in the future. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. It's very exciting. The India story, just, it is exciting. I mean, just to touch on very briefly the India story, and again, I'm not a, you know, I was in banking for a bit, but I'm, you could never describe me as a banker um, uh, or indeed as an economist. But uh, I think one of my observations seeing the India opportunity is, um, has always been huge, the opportunity. And I think what's what's different now? What's different now is, We've had continuity of government, whatever your political persuasion is uh, here in India. We now have the prime minister on the second term. Uh, it is, uh, he's very well known internationally. India, um, I think, will be 
an important investment destination for um, corporates, for pension funds, for sovereign wealth funds uh, in the future, not least because of right now. They've seen the over-reliance on China has meant whether it's your supply chain or your capital or your uh, markets, you know, to, to have invested very heavily in China at the expense of India or not to have exposure in India is, has proved quite damaging for some of them. So I think and India ultimately will be a beneficiary of that. The markets, like every other market around the world, uh, were very heavily battered. They have rebounded, um, not quite all, but for the vast majority of, of that downturn now. There will be some pain to come. It's a very volatile market here in India by global standards as well. But the India story is one that you cannot um, ignore. This economy will be the third largest economy uh, on the planet. Um, It's just a matter of when that will happen, how quickly that will happen. It's obviously got 1.3 billion people. Uh, Very vibrant. And last but not least, I'd say that um, particularly sitting down here in Bangalore, this is the tech hub of Asia you have got some of the brightest young minds anywhere in India, anywhere in the world, uh, who are able to compete with, you know, the key players, whether they be in Silicon Valley or beyond. Um, And that is really exciting for India, a very young population, a vibrant um, population. And um, so I think that all... um, you know, bodes well for the future of the economy. But in the short term, obviously, like everything, and, and we're going through probably a bit more delayed than many other um, large economies around the world here in India, we, we may well be in the in the middle of it right now. Um, you know, we have to get out of, out of that situation. But at the end of the day, um, tragic as though this crisis is, you know, we have to at some stage get back to um, the business of... Um, of, of really trying to raise India as an economy. Too many people depend on India domestically um, for us not to do that. And also internationally, I think the world does need a counterbalance to China uh, in a post-COVID-19 world. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, I think it's, it's uh, I'm very excited to see and to hear about what you guys end up investing in and, and the logic behind it and of the next generation of companies that are about to come out because, uh, you know, the, with education bound to be uh, continuously evolving in India and getting better and better. I'm very curious as to, especially with the environment of Bangalore, as you mentioned, with so many bright minds, they'll end up passing the mantle to the next generation as well and teaching them all these uh, skills, whether it's with coding or whether it's with development and and the the sheer size and the scalability of India as well. You'll see a lot of new apps coming and, and I'm very curious and excited to see the developments that will occur over the next decade. Uh, in the country, and it's, it's yeah. very exciting that you're a part of that. Yeah, it's, I mean, one other thing, of course, um, an obvious observation is that India, in many ways, you know, on the on the downside in terms of financial inclusion, for example, um, you know, ten years ago, as a tiny fraction of the country had um, any you know, access to financial products and services whatsoever. Now it's a completely different story, but in large part because the providers of technology, the financial institutions and so on, have been able to leapfrog existing um, technologies that might exist in the US or Europe and so on and just develop their own. And I think the populations have moved straight into that um, tech platform era rather than going through the rather uh, old-fashioned manual way of doing things as before. So that helps India in um, in its path, I think, to this exciting new kind of chapter. Definitely. 
Definitely. Uh, this brings me to to the next thing with uh, with uh, culture playing an important role. You've been involved with so many different people, and again, it's kind of connected to the globalization from all around the world, whether they're in Africa, Asia, Europe, Middle East. Uh, how do cultures intermingle, and and what is the beauty of of seeing so many different cultures? And and uh, what advice do you have, especially if there we have any listeners that could be uh, nationalists, what would you say that uh, that is very beneficial about actually embracing other cultures and learning from them? So as I, I mentioned, you know, during a couple of my chapters, both in the military, um, when, you know, I might be doing a peacekeeping operation with Russian armed forces and Italians and Americans and Spanish and so on, uh, through to... Um, Again, when I was serving with the Indian Armed Forces, we had exchange military officers from everywhere, from Mongolia to Myanmar and, um, you know, so many militaries around the world, through to being at Standard Chartered, which is in something like 65 countries and with, I forget how many nationalities, but probably it's easier to count how many nationalities are not working for a big international bank like that. But to to be part of a team, whether it's in in a boardroom setting, with uh, you know me being the only Brit, and to there to be you know many many uh, nationalities represented, to being in a uh, more of a sort of a combat scenario and serving alongside uh, other individuals, um, I've always really thrived on that. I think yeah. you know, I don't know. Um, perhaps perhaps it's an observation that you know Brits um, are more kind of expeditionary than other nations uh, on the planet. Just because of our history and our geography, probably. But um, I definitely feel that. I, I thrive when I'm working with people from different backgrounds and nationalities. My heart sinks uh, if I'm around a, a table with a whole bunch of you know, middle-aged, 51-year-old blokes exactly like me um, because um, that's dull and boring. I'm dull and boring. But to have people from all different... Uh, you're uh, the furthest, furthest thing from dull and boring, my friend. <laughs> just dull. Just dull. Uh, but, but, you know, it's great to have different, not just different nationalities, but different age groups. And I think that's another great way the world of work has really changed is that you could have, you genuinely have an 80-year-old and an 18-year-old um, working with each other. And they're both learning from each other in different ways. Culturally, you know, across different nationalities, that's not to say it's it's easy, um, not least. Uh, and I think it's it probably is even harder, as I mentioned about Zoom and so on, you haven't met that person some of the uh, non-verbal cues that you have to take from people when you're negotiating, when you're leading, managing, uh, uh, putting together some projects and so on. It's very difficult to do that virtually. It's easier um, face-to-face, of course, but it's still then it is difficult. You know, for example, I haven't been to China before I joined Standard Charter. I've been to Hong Kong, but not China, uh, the mainland. Uh, And so, you know, that was a big learning experience it's for, for me, I probably haven't invested enough time and haven't been there enough time to, to probably ever in my lifetime become an expert or to really have a cultural affiliation with China. But do I understand the very, very basics? Yes, I do. Uh, and I think that whether you're, uh, you're a, someone working with me as a Brit or it's the other way around, we have to understand some of the cultural nuances that exist. Some 
countries are a lot more hierarchical in the world of work. India is, for example, you know, traditional industries here are very hierarchical. It's changing. Uh, but if you are younger, uh, you're probably your, your voice is not quite as loud as, um, as if you are older. Um, there's a sort of automatic respect here for age as well, which can also be a double-edged sword. So you have to have, I think, a little bit of um, cultural uh, affinity, but also to have a little bit of a, uh, you know, to try to deploy some of your EQ in working out what makes them tick and the culture that they come from and how that influences their business decisions. But by and large, I love it. I mean, there's nothing better for me when I land in a foreign country uh, to go into a business meeting or whatever it might be um, and to learn from people and engage with them and to be enthusiastic with them and to also utterly, utterly always treat them with respect uh, that um, they they have. And, and sadly, with English being the um, predominant global language, you know, there's sometimes um, in, you know, perhaps in Western Europe, the US and so on, there's a, a little bit of a, um, an arrogance that can creep in just because you have that language as, yeah. as the yeah. starting point. And when you're talking to someone from a different country many thousands of miles away, just because they might not have perfect English absolutely doesn't uh, in any way um, dilute the message and their thinking and their uh, negotiating position as well. But by and large, it's, it's great fun. It's a great adventure. And hopefully I'll carry on doing it for the rest of my life. I'm sure you will. I have no doubt in that. Uh, bouncing off of that, uh, what cultural lessons that you've absorbed from different cultures would you want to pass on to your kids? Let's say, give me like a couple or three, three lessons from different cultures that you'd like your kids to, to live by and learn. Yeah. So uh, it's, a good, it's a good question. I, I'm not sure it's through my own lens, but you know, again, a couple of observations of my kids um, being very fortunate to have grown up in a very multicultural part of London, the centre of London. Uh, and I'm a huge, huge believer in the value of um, not only foreigners who come to London to live and embrace the UK, who will eventually go back to their countries, but also immigration people who will come in and um, be part of our society. And you look over London in particular, the UK in general, uh, that's been a massive driver of um, our economy. I think looking through my my children, and since they went to schools right in the centre of London, they genuinely don't even think about the background, nationality, skin colour, sex of the you know, the children that they've been part of the, the cohort of. And that is so incredibly refreshing. And again, I, you know, it sounds, it sounds almost sort of uh, shameful to say it now, but I come from a little part of um, Britain called Shropshire. When I was growing up, you know, 50 years ago, it was, um, you know, you just didn't have anyone from outside, you know, the, the normal white communities that have pervaded there for hundreds of years. It's changed, of course, now for the, for the better. But, you know, my first exposure to, to people from around the world was really going to, to university, you know, in addition to a little bit of travel and so on. So, so I think things are changing anyway. I think that what we have to do, we've got a responsibility to try and make sure that, we, that there is a, an equality of opportunity for everybody. And so number one for, for my own kids is about um, 
never, you know, reading a, a book by its cover in isolation, um, getting to know the, the human being who's in that. Um, second one is that, you know, wherever my three kids end up settling, and who knows where that will be around the world, who they're going to end up falling in love with, and where they're going to start families, or where they're going to suddenly have a job opportunity, and they'll probably live in a, a few different countries and stuff. But if you throw yourself into that country, you um, you try not to rail against it. Generally, people are very appreciative of that. I think, like, yeah. and that's what I've done here yeah. in India ever since I first came. You know, I, you you can, as a foreigner, you can be very frustrated by this country because you know things don't necessarily run um, like clockwork. <clears throat> you know, it's not necessarily the most uh, organized um, economy or uh, uh, infrastructure in the world. A lot of it's still developing very quickly, and so on. So. You know, if you're a foreigner, some foreigners, you know, rail against that and go shocked. Uh, but on the other hand, if you embrace that in a way, and it's not just to say, you know, to roll with it and nothing ever gets done, but also to see that as a bit of a challenge, it can be really beneficial. And I think if you can throw yourself into a new culture um, very quickly, that is also beneficial for them too. And last but not least, I guess I would say for my own kids, my own observation is that... Um, you know, again, whether you're serving with people from different nationalities or working with them and so on, if you can make an effort to get to know the person, to get to know them as an individual, their family members, their background, um, that really helps you. So it's a quite a big investment. I think particularly in the corporate world, it's easier just to, you know, sit next to someone. Um, I find it hilarious in the corporate world how people can sit next to each other for genuinely, you know, 12 years and barely know anything apart from their first names. Yeah. Uh, whereas yeah. actually getting to know people around you, getting to know their story, uh, being very open with them, um, I think there is probably zero short-term gain in that. But in the long-term or medium-term, it always comes back to be very beneficial because you always need them, they'll need you. Uh, and if you start off with a, a basis of, of forming a, a real human connection, that's... I think is, you know, is, is really valuable. Definitely. Uh, I think with that, uh, I just wanted to thank you so much, Richard, for, for joining us today in this episode. It's been incredible to catch up with you and, and uh, I'm glad that you finally get to visit the family and then get a, you know, well-deserved vacation after all the madness that the entire world has gone through. Uh, and uh, yeah, look forward to seeing you soon. And, and uh Thank you for joining. Thank you. No, thank you, Carl. It's been fun chatting to you. Uh, I look forward to seeing you, obviously, in person uh, really soon. But I wish you great success with this series. And uh, I'm sure I shall be um, one of the most dismal and, um, <laughs> uh, and dull uh, people you have on, on your series. But I think it's always interesting, uh, just to finish off, uh, hearing people's life stories. I'm endlessly fascinated by people, including you and your family and so on, about how people got... Uh, to where they are and the journey that they're on. And I think that even in a tiny way, if people find, uh, you know, um, a few things that I've done either bizarre or interesting, that's good. But, I, but I've learned from people's um, stories. Uh, that's in particular what I loved at Standard Charter was meeting all these amazing entrepreneurs. And uh, very often the people um, who on the outside have achieved hugely have actually been people who've come almost from nothing or have, as we were chatting about earlier, really failed in life and then turned their lives around. I think those are some of the most compelling stories.
I agree. I agree. And I think that's why we connected as well. I love for, for sondering and, and uh, witnessing different lives and, and, you know, the, the great aspects of, of individuals and how we can come together despite our differences in cultural backgrounds and how we can always have a blast regardless. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Yeah. A vital ingredient of life. Yeah. <laughs> well, see you, Richard. Have a great day. Okay. Thanks, Colin. Thanks so much.